This afternoon I preach you the Word of God as the church summarizes and confesses that in Article 25 of the Belgic Confession. And I'll read that, we'll read that together. It's on page 509 in the Book of Praise. The title is Christ, the Fulfillment of the Law. We believe that the ceremonies and symbols of the law have ceased with the coming of Christ and that all shadows have been fulfilled so that the use of them ought to be abolished among Christians. Yet their truth and substance remain for us in Jesus Christ in whom they have been fulfilled. In the meantime, we still use the testimonies taken from the law and the prophets both to confirm us in the doctrine of the gospel and to order our life in all honesty according to God's will and to his glory. <clears throat> Beloved Church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there's a strong movement nowadays among many so-called evangelical churches to maintain the value of the Old Testament in its worship. I've spoken with members of traditional Christian Protestant churches who described that their church sacrificed and served a lamb at the time of the celebration of Lord's Supper. The leaders really wanted the people to experience the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in a more tangible way. Many churches in the world have an altar that stands in the center of the building right alongside a cross with the image of what they imagine Jesus looked like as he hung on it. Many more have introduced cheap imitations of the golden ark and set it in the front of their building, sometimes even with heavy curtains or veils as symbols of the presence of God among them. Many defend the use of Old Testament priestly garments for the office bearers. The use of terms to describe the different buildings uh, and people, it also continues uh, today so that many church buildings are called temples or holy places. Musical bands are called Le Levites and other church leaders are called priests. And the fact that the Belgic Confession, which was written in the 1560s, has an article dealing with this shows that the use of Old Testament type props in worship is not a new idea. And so the church's response, is to, the response to the same things in the 16th century remains relevant even today. We continue to express the truth of our clear and succinct confession in Jesus Christ's work by the form of our worship. And I preach to you the gospel of Christ's transforming work through the Spirit under this theme, Christ's work on earth changed the way the church worships the Lord. We'll see worship B.C., and that B.C. stands for before Christ, before Christ fulfilled the Old Testament. And we'll see worship A.D., that A.D. stands for Anno Domini, or during the reign of Christ, the year of our Lord. So first then, what worship was like in the Old Testament, and to do this, you should imagine that your name 
is David Ben Solomon, or if you're a girl, maybe Rachel Ben Adonijah, and you're a Jew, and you're living in the golden age of the Old Testament kingdom, when peace in the land and a beautifully adorned, complete temple made it possible for you and your family and your nation to keep the laws for worship that God had established. The physical evidence of God's nearness to his people could be seen uh, from, where, from wherever you looked in the city of Jerusalem for that glittering temple standing right there in the midst of the city. If you were in David or Rachel's sandals, you would have a very clear sense in your mind that you belong to a very special, a very set-apart nation because the almighty creator of heaven and earth established a special relationship with you, promising that he would be your God and you would be his people. If your name was David, you would have been circumcised on the eighth day as a sign of this covenant relationship. And from a young age, you would be taught the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. The Shema is that very well-known uh, statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Well, David and Rachel would grow up learning the Ten Commandments, the glorious history of God's marvelous works and the history of your nation, from creation to Adam to Noah to the wandering Aramean Abraham to all his descendants, to the great prophet Moses, Samuel, and the well-known recent kings of your day, David and Solomon. You would learn, you would teach all these things diligently to your children, talking of them when you were sitting in your house, when you were walking on the way, when you lie, when you lie down, when you rise. And as you grew up, you would be reminded that you were called to be a holy and a set-apart people for the Lord, even with the things that you ate. And so you would never eat uh, any meat that came from a pig or any other unclean animals. As David or Rachel, you would be very aware that you were a holy people in a covenant relation with the holy creator God who loved you in spite of your impurity and sinfulness. And if you were David or Rachel, you would be very aware of your impurity and sinfulness. You would be taught that many skin diseases, emissions, and even unintentional interactions with unclean items or animals or people, they just make you unclean and unable to enter into God's presence in his temple for worship for many parts of the year. If you were Rachel, you would learn that just because you are a woman with an ordinary biological cycle, you would be unclean for several days every month. As David or Rachel, you might remember a time when your parents or, or you yourself had to smash contaminated clay pots or burn contaminated clothes, or even rebuild some of the walls in your home due to the infectious uh, infections of illness or mold. 
In many of these instances, you would also remember how, how the priests would, would come. They would be like doctors inspecting your skin or, or home inspectors that would have to give you a clear declaration of cleanness so that you and your family could leave your lockdown quarantine and you would again be allowed to participate in full worship with the other believers. The weakness of the human flesh and the consequences of the fall were always evident in the life of Old Testament worshipers. That's why David or Rachel, they would praise God for the gracious opportunity for forgiveness that they received in the guilt offerings and the sin offerings that they could offer. David and Rachel would feel the cost of forgiveness in a very personal way because every time again they would have to make a sacrifice. They would have to give something up. They would need to slaughter many animals just for their regular sins. They needed to pay retribution for any dishonesty toward their neighbor along with more animals again, more sacrifices, guilt offerings. If you were Rachel or David, you would always associate that desire of, of giving yourself to the Lord and, and living in His presence with generosity. That desire to dedicate yourself to the Lord in the burnt offering would require you to give up a, a whole animal, burn it completely up before the Lord. Every time you expressed thanksgiving to the Lord, it meant generosity to your neighbor and to the church. Every time you wanted to enjoy fellowship with your neighbor again, you gave up something that came with a beautiful cost to show the sincerity of your love. Faith in God was seen with concrete, costly acts of generosity to God's kingdom and to the support of the vulnerable. You can imagine then how much fun it would be to be David or Rachel or their neighbors and how privileged you would feel to be a part of this communion, this communion of, of God's people helping and worshiping or helping one another and worshiping God together. And such a uh, such a, a feeling was made even stronger through the great number of special days and feasts that just filled your calendars. If you were David or Rachel living when Solomon was reigning, every Saturday, the Sabbath, would be a day of rest as you thanked God for his creation and for delivering you, your people, from slavery to sin, from slavery from Egypt. It would be a day dedicated to reading from the law, possibly even singing some of the psalms that had recently been published by King David and Solomon. And although the melodies would not be Genevan, the titles referring to different melodies and the, the, the mention of for the director of music and the ongoing rhythmic musical reading of the Hebrew text indicates that David and Rachel probably were singing along as the psalms were recited together. Besides the weekly Sabbath festival, there were other regular monthly and annual feasts. The first day of each lunar month would be a new moon festival, and the seventh month would be the most special of all those 
new moon festivals because the trumpets would come out and they would, the priests would be blowing the trumpets in celebration. There were three annual pilgrimage festivals. Imagine that as a family would all gather together and travel to Jerusalem. The first time in the first month of the year would be for Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There you would have to go, if you didn't live in Jerusalem, you would have to travel toward Jerusalem with everyone in your family who could make the journey. You would offer a lamb as a sacrifice. You would have a meal together with you and your family. And then you'd make sure that the place where you were staying had no yeast in the house. You can imagine the kids getting sent out. Get rid of, you see any yeast, get, get rid of it out of the, the house. We can picture how it was such a major feast in the lives of the people of God. And later in that year, a few months later, at the beginning of the wheat harvest, after the presentation of the first uh, barley offering, you, you would again go to the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost to offer up lambs and sacrifice and loaves of bread as gifts to the Lord. The seventh month would definitely have been the month with the biggest holidays, for not only was the Day of Atonement on the tenth day, but just a few days after that, the Feast of Tabernacles or booths or tents would begin. And so you would go too and, and you would stand before the temple, maybe praying fervently for the high priest as he would enter into the most holy place that, that one time in the year. With the sacrifice, with the blood of the sacrifice for the sins of the entire nation, to have them removed in a, in a single day. And he sprinkled it in the ark. And if you lived far away from Jerusalem, you would have to decide if you would go home for the five days before the next feast, or if you would just stay in town to prepare your booths, your tents, for the wonderful national retreat when everybody would stay in tents for a week praising God for his protection of your people when you were in the wilderness and rejoicing in the final harvest. If you were David or Rachel, you would understand the nearness of your holy God. You would understand the need for a mediator, for, for the priests, the purpose and the need for the sin offerings, the forgiveness of sins, God's call through his prophets to, to trust in him as your father, your need as a people to remain distinct and holy in the world, and the rule of God himself in your lives through his anointed kings. Yet, you would also know that all those ceremonies and those symbols that God commanded were preparing your hearts and your minds for the coming of the promised Messiah. You would live comforted and assured on the one hand, but also eagerly awaiting the fulfillment of God's promises on the other hand. Maybe you would even have discussions, what would that Messiah be like? You would understand what we read in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, that according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The tabernacle, the temple, 
the feasts and all the symbols in these ceremonies were comparable to shadows. Shadows pointing to the greater day when the Messiah would come. Worship B.C. was a preparation for worship A.D. in the year of our Lord. The key to understanding the connection between Old Testament and New Testament worship is found in the confession that Christ Jesus fulfills the law. He fulfills the law and the prophets. And the word fulfill does not mean abolish. You could see that when you walked in today or when you tuned in and you saw the display text, Matthew 5, verse 17, our Lord Jesus himself said, I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. There was no fundamental truth or idea that was lost when the ceremonies and symbols of the law ceased. In other words, the promises behind the outward forms in the Old Testament remain real and true in New Testament worship. We could even say it this way, that the outward forms remain in the written word, kind of like a list of ingredients exists on the table for anyone who wants to come and consult what is in those cookies that you are eating. Fulfillment means that the full meaning of every part is made clear in its applied form, in, in action. And that everything God gave or promised is more fully given today. And so all the ceremonies and the symbols of the law as they were expounded by the prophets are fulfilled in Christ. We see them in living color. He is the true Israelite and the child of God. If you were imagining you were David or Rachel, he is, he is the true David or Rachel, the child of God. He is the embodiment of the law. He is the prophetic voice of revelation who proclaims the full counsel of God with his own life of obedience. We see that also in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. He said he was the temple. For he is Emmanuel, God with us. He is also the way to the heavenly glory and eternal fellowship with God. He is the clean Israelite who willingly even absorbed the uncleanness of sinners. He is the holy and the set-apart one, not only by his kosher diet, but even more by his sinless life. He is the sacrificial lamb, the high priest who offered the lamb. He is the fulfillment of, of all the kings, for he leads the church into their new life in his kingdom. He brings the full meaning of all those Old Testament feasts. He brings the eternal rest that was pointed to in the Sabbath. He brings deliverance from sin that was pointed to in the Passover feast and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He is the one who, who brings in the harvest of the nations, just as that was pointed to in the harvest feasts. And in Christ, we celebrate the forgiveness of sins obtained. We celebrate the rescue from death obtained, eternal life obtained. The harvest of all believers from all over the earth as the Spirit continues to work and bring in 
all God's chosen ones. We have every reality and everything promised in the Old Testament, but we have it in a much fuller form. Living in the year of our Lord, Anno Domini, after the completed work of Jesus Christ for us and in our place, it has wonderful results for our lives, for our worship. The passages we read in Acts and Hebrews really highlight that the coming of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit really change the way that we worship today. Although there are many similarities in truth and substance, there are also many differences. And we can, we can see that just compare you now with those imaginary friends, David and Rachel. And I think even as you heard a description, a little bit of their life and worship, you got a sense of the similarities in the principles. This is living proof that you apply what you confess when you say that the truth and substance of the Old Testament ceremonies and laws and testimonies, they remain in worship A.D. You too experience the nearness and the, and the presence of God with you even though the temple you see is not a special building found in a city, but it is your body and the body of, of those believers around you, God's temple dwelling among you. God's everlasting covenant that was established so many years ago continues to, to be a great source of comfort to you today. You know that he is your God and you are his special holy people whom he loves, set apart from the children of unbelievers with a sign of the covenant. You too desire to show your love for God and for your neighbor by ordering your life according to those same Ten Commandments. And like the Old Testament believers, when you sin, you confess your sins. You come before the Lord in, in humility. You, you plead for his grace on the basis of the blood of a sacrifice. And you repent from your sin. And you amend your life. And you make retribution with those whom you injured. We are such a part of the centuries of God's unfolding drama that we are even able to respond to God's grace with the same songs, with the same psalms, experiencing the same emotions and filled with the same joy. And at the same time, there are major differences as well. And we notice this especially when we're singing those old songs. We can see the differences. We sing about many things that were concrete for our friends David and Rachel in the time of Solomon. We have learned that we are really singing about the fulfillment of these things in Jesus Christ. So we can think of some examples. How many times do we sing about Jerusalem? Well, it's not Jerusalem, the literal city, where Old Testament worshipers would go to the temple on a regular basis, but as we sing Jerusalem, we have in our minds the principle, the place where God dwells, which includes Old Testament Jerusalem, as well as every place where God dwells by His Spirit. We, we know intuitively we're singing of the church. 
And then we sing about David. It's not just David that we are singing about. He is like a symbol for us as we sing of God's anointed king, whom we know today as, as Jesus Christ, the one who was before David, who reigns forever on his throne. And although many question whether or not it is worth it to continue on with this Christological translation every time while we're singing instead of just re-replacing those ancient psalms with New Testament updated songs. We recognize the beauty in celebrating our connection to the church of all ages, rejoicing in God's covenant faithfulness, noting clearly what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us throughout all the generations. And the clear thing to understand is that A.D. worshipers know more of God's unfolding plan of salvation than B.C. worshipers did. One writer even said that you today, worshiping in church, you know more about Jesus Christ than the very people who were standing around his manger. Whereas they only learned the Shema, which affirmed that the Lord our God is one God, who can refer to himself in the plural, we know that the one Lord, our God, is three persons in Trinity. Whereas they were surrounded by symbols that were pointing ahead to the person and the work of the promised Messiah, we know the details, we know the names, we know exactly what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did. We have a revelation like we saw this morning of, of our Lord Jesus interacting with the people around him. For us, a temple, an ark, censers with, with the fire and the, and the incense coming off them, they're unnecessary. For Christ has obtained all these things promised for his church. The New Testament believer living in 2021 prays to God in the name of Jesus Christ. He is our temple. He is our way into the presence of God. And so today it would be a blasphemous rejection of Christ and his uh, sacrifice if we were to shed blood in sacraments or in sacrifices. For Christ's blood took the place of any blood that, that me may want to offer. We also no longer need to seek purity and cleanliness by the outward washings and regular atonement before priests. For we are perpetually clean in God's sight through Jesus Christ's finished work. For he bore the wrath of God against our sins. There are no longer any priests or prophets, or kings leading the church. For Jesus Christ is the active prophet, priest, and king, and we share in his anointing in these offices. There is no more distinction between clean and unclean animals, just as there is no longer any distinction between clean and unclean peoples, like Peter learned in Acts 11, and the New Testament worshiper can have a plate full of bacon in the morning before they gather together with, with people from all kinds of, of uh, nations and backgrounds, including, as we read, Gentiles like us. The Old Testament Pentecost feast has been fulfilled. 
And we live in the final age between the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the final return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we think about that, we realize that we've come across another similarity to the Old Testament worshipers. We are living between, in the between phases. We have the already, and we have what's called the not yet. And so the Old Testament ceremonies and symbols of the law are gone, but that doesn't mean that we are completely without any symbols today. Today God is not preparing us for the first coming of Jesus Christ, but he is preparing us for Christ's second coming when he will come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, but he is also carrying us through the next stage of the history of redemption to prepare us for a future day when he will come again and God will be all in all. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, the New Testament Sunday day of rest, they continue to direct our minds back to Christ's work and ahead to his return. We continue to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth as we anticipate the great day when Christ comes again. And as our brothers and sisters in the Old Testament, we also live in the already and the not yet at the same time, except that we may know more about God's work in the already than they did, and there is less that belongs to the not yet. And each day we know we're that much closer to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the anticipation builds in our hearts and in our lives. And what is the main point of our confession in Article 25? Let us live and worship God in such a way that we take hold of everything that Christ has obtained for us. Take hold of that grace, that completed work. Let us live on the cutting edge of, of his work, near his return, ready to receive him. We believe that we should worship God according to the reality of today and not according to the historical realities of the past. And so the time of arcs and temples and priests and Levites and vestments and altars and food laws and nativity scenes and bodies still hanging on crosses has passed. And the worship of God in spirit and in truth is here. Christ is in heaven. The spirit is in our hearts. The Lord is extending his kingdom to include believers from all over the world. And our Lord is coming soon. And we pray, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Amen.